Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, chapter 2. Jonah, chapter 2. As we continue to work our way through uh, this short series on this book that's rich with doctrine, it's rich with the gospel, even as we've just been singing about Jonah, chapter 2. I'm actually going to ask you to stand as we read the scriptures together. I'm going to begin in Jonah chapter 1, actually verse 17, and read through the end of chapter 2. This is God's word. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who, forsake, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish. And it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, your word is so rich. Every word of it rings true. Lord, we thank you for saving us from our sins. We give you thanks through our Lord Jesus Christ, even as we've been taught to pray. We appeal to you, and we come to you now, even as weak and feeble people, people full of all sorts of distress, some of it inflicted upon us by others, some of, us, some of it brought upon our circumstances by our own sin. And yet we remember you. We remember that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love that you forgive sinners and so we praise you and give you thanks for this great gift of salvation. Even for the gift of the Spirit who now dwells within us. And Father, even as we have read this word and as we see in the book of Jonah your heart for the nations, we do pray for the gospel to advance, for your word to take hold of people And even as we think of Jonah here 
floating around the Mediterranean, we do pray for those churches scattered around the Mediterranean. We pray that you would raise up more churches, that you would save your people there, that you would hear their cries for mercy. Even closer to home, we do pray for the churches that we partner with in various forms and different times. We pray for Fairview Baptist Church, and even as they look for a church building, we ask, Lord, that you would supply for their needs. We pray for Grace Fellowship Church in Toronto and ask that you would bless their work there, that they would remain faithful to the gospel. We pray for our church as well here, and we ask, Lord, that you would show mercy upon us and for our kids, for our youth. Lord, we ask that you would bring up their life from the pit. We thank you for the ways that you have provided for us, even financially, over the last two years. We ask that you would, you would help us not to be an anxious people, but a trusting people. And when, we, and when we are in need, that we would call out to you. Even as we've seen you deliver and supply for us far more than we can ask or imagine already. We continue to pray just for the, for the various ministry endeavors, for the women's retreat upcoming, for the men's breakfast, for the many other, other conversations and ministries that are going on behind the scenes, the nursery, the catechism. Well, Lord, may these things all be infused with the truth, with hope, with grace. And even now, as we come to your word, we ask, Lord, that you would fill us with the Spirit, that you would open our ears to behold wonderful things from your word, that you would keep a guard over the door of my mouth, that I might not sin against you, but speak what is true and profitable for your people here today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was a, a young teenager, um, I aspired to be one of three things, maybe all three things. A farmer, a farmer like my daddy and his daddy. I grew up on a farm just north of Calgary here. I wanted to be a farmer, go put the seeds in the ground, watch them come up, harvest them. I also, like many young Canadian boys, I wanted to make the big leagues, play in the NHL. And then the third thing I, that I really wanted to do was, was be a pilot. Kind of surprising. These things don't necessarily go together. There's no rhyme, no reason to it. Well, as you can clearly see, I'm none of those. I'm none of those. I go up to the farm every once in a while for some seasonal therapy. Uh, and last I checked, uh, the scouts haven't given me a call. Unless Julie's keeping something for me. Um, and, and the last time I played Flight Simulator, I, I crashed and burned. So I don't think you want me flying your plane. Well, you think of that, that last kind of desire of me and of my heart. The pilot thing had intrigued me for a while. And every once in a while, I would actually flip on a show. I'd flip on a show called Mayday. Now, I don't know what you, if you guys have ever watched it, but the, the title gives it away, right? Mayday. That's what pilots call in their distress. When the plane's going down, when they're in dire straits, they call out, Mayday! It's a cry for help. It's a cry for some sort of salvation, even. And just as a little bit of a side note, I remember watching this show 
several times on a plane between here and Louisville. And I, I have no idea why they thought it was a good idea to put May Day on the screen while you're flying in this tube, but regardless. Well, whenever a plane crashes, uh, investigators, they head to the scene and they try to piece together what happened. And at that crash site, the investigators look for that all-important piece of the puzzle known as the black box. The black box. It's a, a recording device, and it records all sorts of analytics about the, the aircraft's systems. It also records the voices of the pilots. So that when the plane is crashed, they can go back and figure out what went wrong. What were the pilots calling out in those last moments before they crashed? Well, in a similar fashion, Jonah chapter 2 is a bit like May Day. It's a bit like a black box. It gives us a window into Jonah's experience as he continues that downward descent that we talked about last week. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship. And now we see that he's cast into the sea and he's going down, down, down. It's a prayer. The prayer makes up the bulk of chapter 2 here. It's a prayer of thanksgiving as Jonah himself recounts, even from the belly of a fish, God's dealings with him. He recounts his plight. He recounts the Lord's provision. And then at the end, he makes some big promises. He recounts his plight, the Lord's provision, and then at the end, makes some promises. You'll see there, very clearly, that this is a prayer. It's a prayer. Chapter 2, verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying... And so we hear Jonah's prayer. We hear the voice of Jonah, his cry of distress, his calling out to the Lord. And yet, even though Jonah is the one who is doing a lot of the talking, it's actually, once again, the Lord who takes center stage. It's the Lord who takes center stage. Because this prayer, it's an escalation as he recounts what was happening to him, and then he recounts the Lord's miraculous deliverance, and then it culminates in this Great statement at the end there in verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord is bringing Jonah very low so that he understands that God alone saves. God takes center stage. It's this punchy two-word conclusion in Hebrew. The Lord saves. Salvation belongs to him. It's his prerogative. It's his delight. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And everything, I, I think this is a climactic verse. It's really the key verse, I think, in the book of Jonah. It sits here right at the very center of the book. Everything in chapter 1 and 2 builds up to this point, And everything that we see happen in chapters 3 and 4 flows out from it. It's a key climactic confession. And it's a, and it's a confession that every true Christian must confess. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And to him alone. Contrary to what you may have heard, Jonah makes it very clear here that God helps those who can't help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. And even more than that, God helps those who deserve to die. Who deserve for the, for the bars to be closed upon them. Who deserve to be alienated and separated from God. That's what you deserve, and that's what I deserve. 
And yet, God delights and even accomplishes a miraculous salvation to bring up the lives of those who deserve death and hell from the pits. That's what we see in Jonah chapter 2. And so we're going to look this morning at four truths about the Lord's salvation. If you're following in your bulletin, you can scrap that outline because I've changed it. So this is, I always seem to get up here and just say, forget the bulletin. So just forget the bulletin. Just follow along. Four truths. Four truths about the Lord's salvation that we would do good to remember, even as we learn from Jonah's prayer. The first truth. first truth is this. God saves anyone, anyone who calls upon him. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 15, you'll remember how Jonah got himself into this situation. Of course, he's been running from the Lord. He's running, seek, seeking to flee from the presence of the Lord. He's seeking to flee from God's instructions, his words. We noted that spiritual decline. And of course, Jonah now has been hurled into the sea. Chapter 1, verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Uh, you, you get there, and if, you, if that's all you had, you might think, okay, Jonah's a goner. God showed great mercy to these sailors, but Jonah, he's done. And yet we see that God's not finished with Jonah. Which is not surprising when we understand that God is a God of mercy. He's a God of second chances. We read there then in verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So as it was back in chapter 1 where we see the Lord hurling the wind and the waves upon the sea, we see God as the author and controller, the sustainer of all creation. Well, once again, the Lord appointed a great fish. Nothing is too hard for him. His purposes will not be thwarted. He will accomplish what he intends to accomplish. And he appointed this particular fish to save this particular man at this particular time. We see then, salvation belongs to the God. It's a great declaration of God's own freedom. His freedom to act in accordance with his purposes. Sometimes the old confessions, if you read old statements of faith, like the Westminster Confession or the London Baptist Confession, they'll talk about God as being most free. Most free. We have derivative freedom. God is most free. He's not contingent upon anything or anyone to accomplish his purposes. And he appoints here this great fish to swallow Jonah, even to save him from hell. What a thing, even for this man to be swallowed up by a fish at this particular time. God's freedom and initiative and salvation is very clearly seen. And so Jonah, as it says in Jonah chapter 2, verse 1, he prayed to the Lord, his God. His God. Jonah could call the Lord his God because God had delivered him. And it's a good thing for you, Christian believer, to know that you can call him your God, my God. He is your God if you have called out to him for deliverance. If you are a Christian, just as God had set his love upon Jonah and saw that he was rescued from the raging of the sea, 
and certain death and destruction. If you're a Christian, God has set his love upon you and he has appointed an agent to rescue you from your own sins, even from the wrath of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord means it's God's business to save. And in his freedom, he appoints an agent. Now imagine, so you're there in the belly of the fish. Imagine sloshing around and all the juice is spraying on your face. It's just a a nasty experience. I don't know, maybe you've been inside a fish before, I doubt it. But I don't think it would be a pleasant experience. It wasn't a great place to live, but it was a great place for Jonah to learn. And we see here Jonah's response. Even as he's in the belly of the fish, what does he do? He prays. He prays. He calls out to the Lord. He said, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. And then if you go down to verse 7, it says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. It's an amazing thing to see Jonah's response here. Chapter 1, Jonah's seeking to flee from the presence of God. And God gives him a little bit of a taste of what that's actually like. Okay, Jonah, you want to flee from my presence? I'm going to give you a little bit of a taste of what that's like. It's misery. And Jonah returns to the Lord. He returns to the Lord. Now he seeks God's presence by calling out to him for deliverance from his plight. Repentance, brothers and sisters, we consider repentance, turning from our sin. If we're in spiritual decline, we've got to be repenting. But repentance begins by returning to the Lord in those exact areas where we have fled from him, where we have sinned against him. And as Jonah had been fleeing not only from the presence of the Lord, but disregarding God's own words to him, his instructions, you remember God said, go to Nineveh. Jonah goes the other way, disregards God's words. We see now Jonah remembering the Lord. He's remembering the Lord. As his consciousness even wanes there in verse 7, as his life is fainting away, he's about to lose consciousness, and, and his lungs are about to be filled with water and die. His consciousness of the Lord actually returns to him. God had to bring him very low to remind him who he is. Notice all the language that's used here in this prayer. What does it remind you of? Well, it ought to remind you of the Psalms, right? It's psalmic language. Uh, Jonah is consciously echoing the Psalms. He's remembering the Lord as he has revealed himself in his word. He's echoing psalms like Psalm 42, verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. Or Psalm 88, verse 6. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Certainly in the back of Jonah's mind has to be As we looked at last week, Psalm 139, as he remembers who the Lord is. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand 
shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah is recalling that the Lord is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, that he draws near to those who call upon him in their distress. Brothers and sisters, there's a lot of profit here, even as we see Jonah remembering the Lord. It obviously indicates that Jonah had spent significant time storing up God's word beforehand. He stocked the shelves, as it were, so that in his moments of distress, when he felt like he was on the brink of death, he remembered who the Lord is, that the Lord is a God who is gracious and merciful and saves sinners. When great seasons of distress come, we need to be armed with the truth. So we've got to get the word in us now that we might remember the Lord when we're in distress. There's a reason why when a pastor or when you even go to the bedside of a loved one who's maybe in the hospital or someone who's on death's door, we don't really know what else to say. I mean, you can, you can give all sorts of platitudes But actually what those people need in that moment of distress, when it feels like death is just right there, is they actually need to be reminded of the Lord. That's why we read the scriptures. That's why we pray. It's a a very simple thing. You go to a hospital and you don't know what to do, just open your Bible. And it's an amazing thing that somebody, maybe even like Jonah, who seems like they're basically unconscious, that the Lord can work in their heart even in that moment. Jonah remembered that the Lord is near to his people who calls upon him. He was a man who then called out to the Lord. From a, from a prophet who's running now to a prophet who's running towards the Lord. Who's calling out to him. Like that tax collector in Luke 18. God be merciful to me, a sinner. We don't, we don't get exactly what the words that he cried out to the Lord But it was a call for salvation. And unlike those aircraft operators as as a plane descends into the heart of the earth, as they cry, Mayday, they can't do a thing. But the Lord answered Jonah. He answered him. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. When he remembered the Lord, his prayer came to the Lord. Into his holy temple. I mean, Jonah's here in the middle of the Mediterranean, sinking with seaweed wrapped around his head. And yet, even there, the Lord hears his cries for mercy, for help. Note this, friends. The Lord hears prayers, and he answers them. I mean, these are some of the basic, you know, facts of Christianity 101, but we can actually forget them. We can forget that the Lord actually hears our cries for mercy and that he answers them. Now the unique thing about Jonah is that the answer to Jonah's prayer was not in a way that he expected, was it? Like, do you, do you actually think that Jonah was expecting to be praying this prayer from the belly of a fish? I don't think so. He didn't expect it. And yet, far better to be there than to be in hell. God answers our prayers, sometimes in unexpected ways, and he answers them in such a way that he will put us in situations to continue to teach us. 
And oftentimes, those prayers, those answers come in stages. Jonah's here in the belly of the fish, and he has to stay there for three days and three nights. And it probably felt like an eternity for the man. And then he's vomited out. So Christian, don't give up. Don't lose heart in praying. The Lord is answering your prayers, and he's answering them so that you continue to grow. That's what he's most interested in, is that you would learn, that you would learn who he is, that you might keep returning to him in your distress. Friends, some of you, like Jonah here, have brought distress upon your own life. There's various kinds of distress, isn't there? There's distress of of just life in a fallen world where there's earthquakes and there's plagues and car accidents. There's the distress of someone who sins against you, who harms you. Oh, yes, in these moments of distress, of course you call it to the Lord. But notice here, Jonah's distress, it's a self-inflicted distress. Why is Jonah here? He's here because of his own sin. He's here because of his own disobedience. And yet, the Lord hears and the Lord answers his cries for mercy. It's a reminder that when God has set his love upon a person, when he has set his love upon you, that he continues to hear your prayers, even as you sin. The Lord looks upon those who are broken and contrite in heart and who call out to him in their distress. The Lord delights to save those who can't save themselves and don't deserve to be saved. So that's the first truth to remember. God saves anyone, anyone who calls upon him. The second truth that we see in Jonah's prayer is that God's discipline is painful and yet purposeful. God's discipline is painful and yet purposeful. Uh, Jonah describes his drowning experience in, a, in really colorful, vivid language, doesn't he? It's almost reminiscent of this dying experience and being separated from God. There's a lot of angst in his soul that you can feel, even as you hear this kind of black box recording of what he was calling out to the Lord and what he was thinking and what he was experiencing as he went down. He says in verse 3, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. I mean, just this description is meant to send shivers down your spine. Though Jonah doesn't actually physically die, he describes this almost hellish horror. He speaks of being in the belly of Sheol, this realm of the dead, separated from life and blessing. He describes the Lord as the one who has cast him into the deep of the sea. He says that he feels like he's been driven away from God's sight. He describes his experience as being strangled by seaweed. As he goes down, down to the land, as he says, the bars closed upon him. As a man who's imprisoned, away from God, away from everything good. He calls it the pit in verse 6. 
His distress has both these external challenges as well as this inner turmoil of the heart. Verse 4, then I said, I am driven away from your sight. He's a man full of angst, terrified. This is no tranquil, snorkeling adventure, right? Uh, This is Jonah being cast into the darkest, coldest, furthest place from God. And in in his experience here, we ought to see a bit of a window into what death is then like for those who continue to run from God. What death is like for the non-believer. It's horrific. To be separated from God is utter terror. Perhaps you're here and you think, "Mm, you know what, to be separated from God is no big deal. Yeah, you think that way because you've never actually tasted the goodness of experiencing his own presence. But it's a terrifying thing, believe me. The word says so. Jonah's experience is meant to warn. It's meant to warn Israel. It's more to, meant to warn us. You keep running from God. You don't repent. This is what happens. Unless we think that God is some just kind of bystander, he's just passively sitting by, Jonah reminds us that it's actually God who is the one who is actively casting Jonah into the sea. For you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Jesus said something similar in Luke chapter 12. He said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast where? into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The Lord is bringing Jonah to a true fear of the Lord. Because of his sin, God has cast Jonah into the sea. Now, to be very clear, Jonah didn't actually go into hell. He didn't actually die. He wasn't actually eternally separated from God. Once a person has died, and if they are outside of Christ, they are separated from God for good. There is no cry of mercy that's going to be heard. Jonah didn't actually go to hell. It was a temporal judgment, a little taste, a warning to Jonah that was designed by God to shake him into a true fear, to fear the one who has authority to cast into hell. It was the hand then of the Lord's discipline, a heavy hand of discipline upon Jonah, bringing him low As I said, giving Jonah exactly what he wanted. Jonah wanted to flee from the presence of the Lord. Okay, Jonah, here's a little bit of a taste of that. Do you really want it? And perhaps the Lord has put you into circumstances, distressing circumstances because of your own sin. And what he's doing is he's warning you. He's warning you. You keep going in this direction. This is where you're going. And it's terrifying. See, God did this. God cast Jonah into the deep in order to restore him. That was his purpose. He was restoring Jonah to himself. Now what's interesting is that you see here in chapter 2, Jonah points to the Lord as the source of his affliction. And yet, back in chapter 1, as we read, it was the sailors who cast Jonah into the sea, right? 
Well, we see by this that the Lord's purposes are often accomplished by means of human agents, even the Lord's judgment, even temporal judgments. I mean, people have been talking about temporal judgments on this land, on this nation, even judgment of the household of God through agents, human agents. Jonah was experiencing judgment, and he used the sailors to cast him into judgment. And Israel here was to see that just as, in, just as Jonah was cast into the sea, that the Lord was actually going to use Assyria to bring them into judgment. That the Lord would discipline them. He would bring them to the end of themselves. That they might call out to him for mercy. See, God in his purposes uses human agents even to bring about affliction and discipline. That he might restore his people. So it's really important for us to get this. As Christians, we can never, we can never be under God's judgment. We, we are no longer under condemnation. We've been brought out of that. And yet, the Lord, because he's set his love upon you, he actually disciplines you for your good. And it's not pleasant, as the writer to Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but later on, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness right? We do at times experience then this heavy hand of the Lord's discipline as a temporal judgment for our sins that we might be restored back into the joy of fellowship with God. He actually has your good in mind as he disciplines you, just as he has Jonah's good in mind. He's bringing him low that he might bring his life up from the pit. As long as you are on this side of the grave, you ought to see even the discipline of God as his kindness that is leading you to repentance. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. And just as an application, as we think of the fact that the Lord uses agents to bring about even this corrective, restorative discipline, I think we, it's appropriate to make an application to the church. It's kind of a bit of a no-no nowadays to talk about church discipline. How dare you do that? But actually, the most unloving churches are those who fail to put someone out when there is a failure to repent. Why? Because that very thing, that confrontation, that confrontation that maybe eventually moves to being excommunicated is actually the Lord's hand of discipline that he would use to then bring them back that they might once again know the sweetness of his fellowship. That's why we call it restorative or corrective church discipline. And we're seeking to imitate even God as we do this. Yes, it's painful, but it's designed for the good of those who love him. Friends, don't despise the discipline of the Lord. It's painful, but the Lord is producing good through it. He is driving us down that we might look to him. He is hiding his face at times, it seems like. There's this feeling that he's, he's not looking at us with favor, even though he is. But there's that feeling that, like Jonah had, that we might turn and seek his face once again and experience a fresh renewal of joy. Friends, the one who can raise the dead certainly has the power to restore those who are running from him. So if you have friends 
Maybe you've got kids, family members who are running from the Lord. Don't forget, the Lord restored Jonah. He brought his life up from the pit. We do well to remember that we were like Jonah and we actually deserved what Jonah was experiencing. Jonah, a man as good as dead, and yet, and yet, those words that you see there in verse 4 and in verse 7, those words are some of the most refreshing, hope-filled words in all of the English language. It's like the but-gods of the New Testament. And yet, he says in verse 4, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Verse 6, the second half there, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Like Jonah, we were headed to the pits of hell. But Jonah's prayer reminds us that the Lord miraculously raises the dead to life. That's the third truth. The Lord miraculously raises the dead to life. As Jonah is on the brink of dying, as his consciousness is fainting, as the weed is wrapped around his neck and his head, as he is about to be cut off from the Lord forever, he calls out and the Lord hears and the Lord sends this miraculous agent to rescue Jonah to swallow him up and to bring his life up from the pit. And even in the belly of the fish, the Lord preserves his life for three days and three nights. And after that, the Lord spoke to the fish and had vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now just imagine Jonah, you know, going around after he spit out. I mean, the man, I'm certain he, he needed to take a shower. It's filthy. But imagine, you know, going to the people as he's on his way to Nineveh. Like, what happened to you, man? You look a wreck. He's like, oh yeah, well, I got a bit of a story. I was swallowed by a fish. And I was there for, for a few days. And then actually this fish spit me out just, just back there. You know, how do you think the people would typically respond to that? You're a nutcase, man. You've been drinking more than seawater, right? You can imagine the skeptics. It seems so ludicrous, beyond the realm of reason or probability. And of course, that's how skeptics nowadays will look at this passage. They'll say, ah, you know, Jonah's a bit like, it's, it's a story kind of like C.S. Lewis, you know, Chronicles of Narnia, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. You know, there's all this kind of fanciful language, fantasy land. Yeah, this stuff didn't really happen. We got a lot of good lessons we can learn from it. You know, the experts, bring in the experts, the fact checkers. Ah, well, nope. Nobody survives in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. You know, we can do the tests on, on, on the pH value of the stomach. Ah, no, nobody could survive for that. That's precisely the point. That's precisely the point. Salvation belongs to who? The Lord. Is there anyone else like the Lord? No. He is the Lord, the one true and living God, the self-existent one. God's salvation is a supernatural reality, which means it's beyond human replication and even human comprehension. And if you can't get beyond it, then you've actually elevated your own mind far too high. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. He does not act according to culturally or scientifically acceptable conclusions. He's not contrary to science. That's not what I'm saying. But he doesn't act in ways that we would expect. They're surprisingly miraculous. They're things that can't be uh, uh, replicated. They, They can't even be explained because salvation belongs to him. His ways are higher than our ways. And of course, if you're familiar with the scriptures, as Jonah was, as Israel was, To be swallowed by a fish and delivered was actually, in a sense, not all that surprising. And you think of all God's deliverances throughout history. They're all miraculous. They're all surprising. They all point to the fact that he alone saves. Noah is saved through the ark. I mean, you imagine the skeptics in his day. Like, why are you building an ark in the middle of the desert, man? And yet, God preserves Noah and his family through the ark. Uh, when God brings Israel out of, e- out of Egypt, they come to the Red Sea, and they're about to be destroyed by Pharaoh's army. They're hemmed in, and yet, God, what does he do? He parts the sea, and Israel walks through on dry land. And then the sea closes back in and destroys their enemies. Numbers 21 Israel, again, in the wilderness, grumbling, complaining, and the Lord sends fiery serpents as judgment on his grumbling people, and it says, and yet the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. I mean, these things are just nonsensical to us. That doesn't work. Let's find some other way to get ourselves out of the problem. Again, that's precisely why God delivers Jonah in the way he delivers him. He brings his life up from the pit by appointing this great fish to swallow him alive, preserve him, and then puke him out three days later. God's ways of salvation seem so foolish. Uh, They're beyond belief, in a sense, when we look at him from the standpoint of our own reason. And yet he acts to save his people in extraordinary ways so that no one with eyes to see can claim anything but the truth that salvation belongs to him and him alone. And so he gets all the glory. I mean, Jonah did nothing here. As some have said, the only thing that Jonah contributed to his salvation was the sin that made it necessary. The Lord's the one that appointed the fish and brings him to life. And friends, if you won't accept the historical reality of something like Jonah's experience in the belly of the fish, then you're not going to accept the greater sign that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 12. As some scribes and Pharisees come up to Jesus, they ask him for a sign. You know, show us that you're the Messiah. And Jesus answered them in Matthew 12, verse 39. He said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If you don't accept Jonah's experience, why are you going to believe that Jesus got up from the grave? And if you don't believe that, as Paul says, we preached preached through 1 Corinthians, your faith is in vain. I mean, if you're, if you're trying to play kind of religious games and 
Uh, I can kind of pick and choose some spiritual truths that I want to get from the Bible. Uh, I don't know about the truthfulness of all these historical facts. If you go there, you might as well just give up the charade and go home. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. How ludicrous. How ludicrous does it sound when you talk with your friends, when you talk with your family members, maybe you rehearse the gospel to yourself. Just, re- just rehearse it to yourself. Oh yeah, God's brought my life up from the pit, not because of anything I've done, but because of a Galilean carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago because he lived a perfectly obedient life. Uh, because he went to the cross. Because he accomplished God's purposes for him. What God appointed for his life, he accomplished. How ludicrous to think that the actions of that man actually bring about your resurrection from the grave. It's ludicrous. I have eternal life now because of that man. A man who forsook every idol. He lived in constant gratitude. He offered his own life as a perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of his people. And that man, in a far better way than Jonah, oh yeah, he experienced distress, but it wasn't self-inflicted distress because of his sin. It was self-inflicted distress because of his love for sinners. That he would go to the cross, that he would die, and that he would be buried, and that he would lay stone-cold dead. No brain activity, no life in his body. Dead, as dead as can be, in the grave. And then walk out three days later. And that that, that man, by those works, would bring about bringing your life up from the pit. It's absolute nonsense when you think about it. And yet, it's matchless Marvelous mercy. Well, friends, when, when you walk through a graveyard, I'm sure many of you have been in a graveyard. Remember Julie and I in Kentucky, there was a, a famous graveyard, Cave Hill Cemetery. It's kind of like a park. It's a little bit weird. You go walk through this cemetery. It was actually a pretty nice place. Well, you go walk through a graveyard, or maybe you don't even need to walk through a graveyard. You just kind of deal with your own distresses, whether it's self-inflicted or inflicted on you. Jonah's experience of drowning seems like it's true. It it, it seems, doesn't it? Oh yeah, I'm driven away. You walk through a graveyard and and it's it's stone-cold quiet. The bars, as Jonah describes, seem to be closed upon his people forever. It seems like God has abandoned his people in the grave, doesn't it? I mean, have you ever thought that when you go there? How can, it, how can God be even present with his people when that's true? Well, he hasn't abandoned his people. Death and hell, they can flex all the muscles they want, and they do. They do. But they are no match for the Lord. They are no match for the one who saves. They are no match for the one who laid in the grave for three days, and upon walking out of that tomb... He's given a set of keys, a set of keys as the risen Lord. And he gets these keys and he speaks and words of comfort to those who, like Jonah, maybe in their distress are terrified of what awaits them 
in the grave. And yet Jesus says in Revelation, fear not. Fear not. Why? Why? Your eyes don't, if you just look at it with your eyes, there's plenty to be afraid of. But the eye of faith says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forever more and I have the keys of death and Hades. The keys of death and Hades to bring the dead to life, to bring those who are in the pit up. The result is that we can say with Jonah, the Lord then is my God. Again, Jonah, this very personal relationship as he remembers, oh yes, the Lord, the covenant God of Israel. He's my God. He's for me. He's for me. He's brought up my life from the pit. I've been saved. I've been delivered. I've been rescued. That's where I was going. I was headed for hell, and that's the testimony of every Christian. We were headed down to Sheol, to hell, separation from God, and yet God has brought up our life from the pit. Think about that, friends. Get real personal. Christ died for you. Christ died for you. He was buried for you, Christian. He was buried and raised for you. For you. So you can call him my God. You are no longer dead in your sins, nor are you destined for an eternity apart from him. And so then, in view of recalling what we deserve, the proper response is, is exactly what Jonah says in verses 8 and 9. It's the fourth truth that we're reminded of. It's that new life produces a new loyalty. New life produces new loyalty. When you consider that salvation belongs to the Lord, that he is free to save whoever he wants, whenever he wants, and that by his free will, he has appointed Christ to bring up your life from the dead. He has set his love upon you. He has called out to forgive you of your sins. Well, this then produces an incentive to loyal, thankful, even sacrificial worship. See, Jonah reminds us that new life means that we need to forsake idolatry. To be loyal to the Lord means forsaking idols. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. I mean, for us sometimes it's hard to kind of grasp what is an idol because we don't necessarily have little figurines like they had back in the day, talismans or, or whatever it might be. But as one theologian put it, the human heart is a factory of idols. We can just churn them out. It's quite natural for us to, to look to something to deliver us, to look to something for significance and hope, for blessing, for life. Whatever it might be that you're looking to and calling upon, that is not the Lord, is an idol. Idols are not just bad things that we obsess about. They are good things that become all-consuming objects of adoration and trust. And Jonah says that these idols are vain. They're empty nothings. It's like, it's like putting your investment into a stock that's not even there. It's, just, it's, it's fake. It's not even there. It's, it's not existent. You're not going to get any return on your investment. It's useless. It's vain. 
And those who put their hope in them forsake their hope of steadfast love. Those who are idolaters, remember what Jesus, what the authors of the New Testament say, they will not inherit the what? Kingdom of heaven. If you look to idols, you will miss out on the mercy of God and you will be plunged into the pit. But Christian, you've been raised to newness of life. John says in 1 John, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. A new loyalty means turning from our idols. And instead of idolatry, Jonah makes two promises to the Lord. He says, but I, in verse 9, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. As those whom the Lord has saved, he has brought to life from the pits, we must then, as an appropriate response, offer sacrificial worship, notice, with a voice of thanksgiving. It's interesting, Jonah's prayer moves from this voice of desperation and almost lament as he's drowning, now to God has brought him up, and what's the response? It's a voice of thanksgiving. And I think there's actually a good application for us here, because we've talked a lot about the goodness of actually lamenting. And there's a lot to lament about. There's a lot to lament about. Lament is biblical when we look back to the Lord, ultimately. But lament is not all there is. It's not all there is. I actually think we need to create some new habits to get back to voicing our thanksgiving, to actually speaking it. Maybe after the service, you just need to say to the person you're talking with something that you're thankful about. Are you thankful that you're not in hell? Are you thankful that the Lord's given you another day of life? The voice of thanksgiving is the appropriate response. It's not all lamentable, folks. There's much to give thanks for and to even offer even our bodies now as living sacrifices to the Lord. To devote ourselves to Him. And Jonah also promises that he's going to make good on his vows. He's going to pay them. He says, what I have vowed, I will pay. I'm going to voice my thanksgiving and my vows, I'm going to pay them. You don't know what Jonah's vow was. Was it a vow he made earlier? Was it a vow he made in the belly of the fish? Ultimately, it was a vow that he would pledge obedience to the Lord, that he was going to keep walking in his ways. Perhaps now is a time to consider afresh your vows to obey the Lord. What are you holding back from him? Yeah, I'll give you that. I don't really want that. That's a little bit too much to give. No, no, no. As the song says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God just with your money? No, no. Uh, Just with your hands? No. Glorify him with everything that you have. And it's not payback. You're not paying your vows. The Lord doesn't even want you to pay your vows back. You can't. That would detract from the fact that salvation belongs to him. This is not payback time. It is the natural response of men and women who, though deserving of hell, receive new life through the death and resurrection of the only man who deserves heaven. New life produces new loyalty. God's salvation is designed, it's, it's ordered, it's aimed at bringing the dead to life. Those who are dead in their trespasses and sins in which they once walked 
are now walking in newness of life. He is making true worshipers from men and women who are as good as dead like Jonah. Turn with me, just as we finish, to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. What we're doing, brothers and sisters, as we voice our thanksgiving, as we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, as we make vows and as we make good on those vows to the Lord, what we're doing is we're actually training our muscles for eternity. It's training our muscles for eternity. Revelation chapter 7, John gets a glimpse of this great multitude even as we remember the book of Jonah is about God's heart for the nations. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Father, would you make this truth stick that salvation belongs to you and to you alone. And if there be any here who have not called out to you for the first time, oh, would they do so today? Prick them. And if there be here your children who have been running, would you bring them back to yourself? Would you restore them? And would you fill us all with the Spirit that we might walk in newness of life, even voicing our thanksgiving. For you have brought up our life from the pit. So we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as an opportunity to apply the sermon, let's stand together and voice our thanksgiving. There is none like our God. Salvation belongs to him and him alone. And you, from Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. There is salvation in no one else except for the man who got up from the dead. Trust in him, and you too will be raised from the dead. Go in peace. You're dismissed.